Hello, and welcome to episode two of Starting the States. I am your host, Jonathan Broida. This time, we will be looking at the second state to ratify the United States Constitution, Pennsylvania. Today, the state of Pennsylvania is known as the Keystone State, due in part to it being geographically located smack dab in the middle of the original 13 colonies, with six colonies below it and six above. But Pennsylvania was called this for more than just its geographic location. In the literal sense, Keystone refers to the wedge-shaped stone at the very top and middle of an arch structure. The weight of the others press on that single stone. And just like a real keystone, Pennsylvania played a central role in binding the original 13 colonies together. Today, the state of Pennsylvania shares a border with New York in the north, Ohio in the west, New Jersey in the east, with Maryland, West Virginia, and Delaware touching in the south. Before and during European colonization, the largest Native American tribes that inhabited Pennsylvania were the Lenape, the Susquehannocks, the Shawnees, and even parts of the Iroquois Confederacy. I spoke about the Lenape in the previous episode on Delaware, so I'm going to refer listeners to that one to learn more about them. Instead, I'm going to move right into discussing the Susquehannocks. Before the arrival of Europeans, the Susquehannocks occupied the areas surrounding the Susquehanna River Valley in Pennsylvania and into the southern portion of New York. They relied on a combination of hunting and gathering, agriculture and fishing to provide them with resources. John Smith, the English explorer, uh, I mean, money finder, was the first European to make contact with the Susquehannocks. He described them as wearing bear and wolf pelts and carrying bows and clubs. He also described them as giants, despite no evidence suggesting they were larger than any other Native American tribe. However, they were likely larger than Smith, since average height for Europeans at the time was 5 feet 4 inches. Sounds like our friend Smith was suffering from a poor case of the smalls. Historians have tended to depict the Susquehannocks as a violent warlike people, but archaeologist April Basaw suggests that this could not be farther from the truth. Instead, the Susquehannocks were a people driven by the changes occurring around them. Their agricultural practices were strained by environmental changes, causing them to increase hunting and or migrate to more sustainable land. However, the arrival of Europeans complicated their lives even more. Hunting became an economic activity with Europeans, instead of just being used as a subsistence strategy. As a result, the population of animals began to decrease, making resources scarcer and scarcer. Europeans further exacerbated this by creating their own settlements and sustaining them by their own hunting practices. After succumbing to disease and war brought upon by the Europeans and the Iroquois, most of the Susquehannocks were wiped out. A small group of them resettled in what is today Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. There they lived until the last 20 were killed by an anti-Indian mob in 1763. The Shawnees migrated to Pennsylvania from the west of North America in the 1690s. Surprisingly, their origins are mysterious and still debated. Some put their original home in Ohio, while others put it in the Tennessee Valley. Their migratory lifestyle makes it difficult to truly understand their culture and society, but migration was an important part of it. Historians John Whithoft and William Hunter write that the Shawnee, quote, held best to certain ideal Native American patterns of behavior, fearlessness, contempt for property and comfort, arrogance toward whites, disregard for authority, reserve, unbridled, forthright expression of aggression and other emotions. European settlers became aware of the Shawnee's strength and fortitude. They allied with the French against the British in the Seven Years' War, 
and then allied with the British against the Americans in the Revolution. They were continuously at war with European settlers until the signing of the Greenville Treaty in 1795, establishing a boundary between Native American lands and European American lands in North America. Their migration to Pennsylvania ended after Americans began pushing them back west, with some settling in Ohio and Missouri. After the U.S. President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act of 1830, the Shawnees were pushed even farther west, to Kansas and eventually to Oklahoma, where their descendants live to this day. The Iroquois Confederacy grew and extended south into Pennsylvania, but they were largely based in upstate and western New York, so we will take a closer look at them in that episode. There were other smaller tribes that inhabited Pennsylvania at various times in history, but not all can be identified. This does not make them any less important to telling the history of the state, and they should not be taken for granted. Native American settlements were not based on drawn and mapped state boundaries. They cross over into many states, so it is hard to attribute one tribe or group as solely being a part of a single U.S. state. What I hope to accomplish is that by telling the history of each state, I will touch on every group of Native peoples that occupied the land that makes up the United States today. I may end up missing one accidentally, but I will do my best not to. If I do, I hope to hear from listeners to let me know so I can correct my error. Okay, with that being said, we can now move into the founding of the colony of Pennsylvania by Europeans. I briefly mentioned William Penn in the last episode on Delaware. If you are a Penn fanboy or fangirl, prepare to eat your heart out. William Penn was born in London in 1644 to a wealthy upper-class family. As such, he enjoyed the perks of a privileged upbringing, including an excellent education. Then, he threw a curveball when he became a follower of the Society of Friends, a Christian group better known as the Quakers. Quaker belief varies, but most believe that God can be reached directly by the individual, without ritual or mediation by a priest, the opposite of Protestants and Catholics. They are famously pacifist, and believe in a simple way of life without extravagance. English law heavily favored Protestantism, and put heavy restrictions on other Christian denominations such as Catholics and Quakers. As a result, the Quakers were heavily persecuted in England. Despite his Quaker beliefs conflicting with the lifestyle of nobility, Penn was accepted by his peers. Helping in his acceptance was his trusted relationship with James II, Duke of York and future King of England. Even though Penn was accepted, other lower-class followers were not. Following in the footsteps of the pilgrims, he wanted to create a place where his fellow Quakers were free to practice and live without the fear of persecution. The North American continent offered just that place. Fortunately for Penn, King Charles II owed him £16,000 that his now deceased father had loaned the king. Gee, thanks, Dad! Instead of asking for it to be repaid in coin, Penn asked the king if he could be repaid in land in the New World, between Lord Baltimore's Maryland and the Duke of York's province of New York. With the Duke's support on April 2, 1681, the king signed the Charter of Pennsylvania, named in honor of William's father. The colony of Pennsylvania was born. But Pennsylvania was not just any colony. It was a proprietary colony. A proprietary was a colony that was granted by the King of England to a specific person or group. Pennsylvania was granted to Penn, Maryland was granted to Lord Baltimore, and New York was granted to the Duke of York. As a proprietor, Penn was given full power to govern as he pleased. He was able to create laws, raise taxes, and even design cities without having to worry about the king breathing down his neck. But in order for a colony to be successful, they needed one crucial ingredient. 
upheaval. Proprietors did everything they could to encourage settlement in their colony. According to historian Maxine Marie, all the proprietors created overly optimistic brochures in order to attract settlers. Some described their colonies as close to reproductions of the biblical gardens of Eden, abundant with plants and animals for the taking. Hey, you gotta spice it up a bit if you're going to encourage people to risk their lives in a two-month voyage across the Atlantic, right? Penn, like the other proprietors, wanted to make financial gains from their colonial ventures, but he also desired to ensure he created a colony that was welcoming to all, especially those that were religiously persecuted. His efforts to do this had a profound effect on the future of the North American colonies, especially during the Revolution. His establishment of Pennsylvania laid down the first bricks for the foundation of the United States. Penn appointed his cousin William Markham as deputy governor of the colony and sent him there to rule. Penn stayed behind in England and began to write what he called the frame of government, the proposed constitution of Pennsylvania. Not only does he mention the free men of the province in the title, within the text he echoes the 1215 Magna Carta, the document that influenced the Founding Fathers' belief that there should be limits to power in government that they eventually expressed when creating the United States Constitution. Reinforcing the significance of Penn's frame of government, historian John Mang writes that, quote, Penn's legacy to the people of America was more than a state bearing his name, end quote. He was responsible for creating the first document in American history that reflected the Magna Carta, called for an elected assembly, and guaranteed the fundamental rights of individuals in his new colony. He did not forget the Quaker persecution at home and ensured that his colony would not just tolerate, but support true religious liberty. In the twelfth clause of his frame, Penn writes that, quote, The governor and provincial council shall erect and order all public schools, and encourage and reward the authors of useful sciences and laudable inventions in the said province, end quote. A clause that helped to lay the foundation for the importance of education and science in the United States today. It is without a doubt that Penn's frame of government had a profound effect on the founding fathers of the United States. Okay, now we can say goodbye to Mr. Penn for the time being, as we move on to looking at the Pennsylvania colony in North America. At the time of the charter, the shape of the colony held the same familiar rectangular shape that the state holds today, just much bigger. Its northern border stretched all the way up into western New York, eating up where the city of Buffalo is located. In the east, Pennsylvania lacked access to the Atlantic Ocean, making the acquisition of Delaware necessary, which in return led to a conflict between Pennsylvania and Maryland, about who had the rights to acquire Delaware, that I spoke about in length in the first episode. Boundary disputes between Maryland and Pennsylvania were continuous. Historian Walter B. Scaife rightly points out that the disputes were due in a large part to the, quote, reckless extravagance of European monarchs in parceling out a continent to their subjects, end quote. It was next to impossible to define the massive boundaries given in each charter with the technology they had at the time. As a result, the colonial charters were more of rough estimates than a clear measurement. I mean, you can go see for yourself. Google search real colonial maps. They don't even come close to being accurate. So these gifts of land that the monarchs gave their nobles was pretty much like throwing a stake at two starving dogs. Here you go, guys. Whoever's the strongest gets it. Good luck dividing that up. This is why Lord Baltimore and William Penn continuously had border disputes between their respective colonies. An interesting twist in the disputes was that the two biggest cities in Pennsylvania today were almost not even a part of the state. The area where Philadelphia was located became a focal point of the boundary dispute between the two colonies. It was like two parents going through a divorce proceeding. 
Does little baby Philly go to mommy Maryland or daddy Pennsylvania? The only difference was this divorce proceeding lasted for nearly a hundred years. If Pennsylvania had lost, the city of the founding fathers and the first capital of the United States would have been in Maryland. The area where Pittsburgh was established was originally not even a part of Pennsylvania. After the French were defeated by the British in the Seven Years' War in 1763, or the French and Indian War as we know in the States, they gave up their lands between the Ohio and Mississippi River. This opened up the opportunity for Pennsylvania to extend their borders east to the Ohio River. However, according to author Mark Stein, the British were fearful that they would lose control of the American expansion, so they prevented them from doing so. This rightly upset the American colonists, who were just beginning to get the scent of independence. Ah, I love the smell of liberty in the morning. In an effort to appease them, the British gave Virginia permission to expand east. At the same time, Pennsylvania decided to expand in the same area, permission or not. As one can imagine, this led to another border dispute, this time between Virginia and Pennsylvania. Eventually, the two sides met on neutral ground in Baltimore. Odd, seeing as Maryland had their disputes with Pennsylvania, too. Nevertheless, western borders were finalized at the end of the Revolutionary War, leaving Pennsylvania as sole owner of Pittsburgh. The population that settled in Pennsylvania was diverse. Much like Delaware, Pennsylvania's early settlers were Swedish, Finnish, and German. After William Penn acquired the territory, his Quaker message of religious tolerance attracted English, Scots, Irish, and even more German settlers. The German immigrants had a profound effect on Pennsylvania, and are responsible for the large concentration of Amish and Mennonites in the state today, known as Pennsylvania Dutch. Dutch being a mistranslation of the word Deutsch, meaning German, not the actual Dutch. They continue to live today in much the same way they did when they first arrived in Pennsylvania to escape religious persecution. And on that note, I'm going to stop here. I've decided to break Pennsylvania into two episodes. I feel that I would be doing a disservice by trying to squeeze important information that reflects the impact the colony had on the creation of the United States all in one episode. Next time, we'll see how Pennsylvania's diverse religious and ethnic populations played a crucial role in defining it during the American Revolution, as well as how the colony helped shape the eventual American Constitution. We will also be looking at Pennsylvania's arguably most famous citizen and founding father, Benjamin Franklin and the role he played in shaping the state. Finally, we will look at how Pennsylvania transitioned from conservative-minded to radical in deciding their participation in the American Revolution. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Starting the States. Follow me on Twitter at Start the States to stay up to date on news and information relating to the podcast. And as always, thank you for listening.